Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you, you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Uh, not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Lord Jesus, it is verses like this and others that remind us that you are very different from us. Our natural inclination is to, so often, to lash out, and yet yours is to show mercy and to pour out blessing, even to even to forgive the ones who crucified you. And so as we wrestle with this idea this morning, would you soften our hearts? Would you soften our hearts to make us more self-aware so that we might see where we struggle with this? But more than that, would you soften our hearts that we might be willing to change? We thank you for your extraordinary goodness, your kindness, your righteousness, your love, your mercy that you do pour down on us. We long to be more like you. Please change us to be more like you. Amen. I have to say, I'm not sure that I had seen before researching and working on this sermon these last couple of weeks that the world loves a revenge story, doesn't it? It's obvious. Sometimes it's... um. You're just wanting to get your own back on someone, or sometimes it's often it's set in a culture of honour and shame, where not seeking revenge and so being dishonoured when you've been wronged means you are shamed and, and you need to do something about that. Let me give you some examples. We'll start a long, long way back, thinking of Homer's Odyssey. That's a long way back, isn't it? And some of you are going back into your perhaps secondary school or just looking at me confused, but it's a vicious roundabout of violence. Violence meted out back and forth, back and forth, unless someone can make intercession and stop that roundabout of violence. Cyclops is described as having a heart inside him brooding for revenge. Or Odysseus arrives home, he finds his house in an absolute state at the end. He's ravaged by young men and Homer writes, Odysseus's heart leapt up. The man convinced he would grind the scoundrels' lives out in revenge. It's very striking. Slightly more modern times, think of Hamlet. Mostly it's a story based around Hamlet seeking to exact revenge on his uncle Claudius because he murders his father. And the charge at the beginning is revenge his foul and most unnatural murder. Those are a bit highbrow. Then think of Gladiator, or John Wick, or Taken or Kill Bill, or even as we were watching last night, Marvel's Black Panther. The whole thing really is based around a revenge from someone who had been ousted from the community 20 years before, 30 years before, and coming back. Or even think of Disney's Incredibles movie. Do you remember Syndrome? 
Syndrome builds his life around wanting to pay back Mr. Incredible, who had told him as a kid, go home, buddy. There's something about revenge, there's something about retaliation and vengeance that sells books from the bookstore and tickets from the cinema. And it seems to resonate with humanity at a deep level. It's as if this world is out of kilter in some way and and it needs to be at rest again. It's a problem that needs to be solved. But I wondered, have you ever wondered why that is? Why do we love this idea of revenge? Why does it resonate with us? Why do we want revenge, first point? As I say, it's been very interesting to read around the subject these past couple of weeks. Different perspectives, different ideas. Um, From a purely psychological perspective, there was a study done in Switzerland in 2004. And as far as I understand it, they set up an experiment whereby they looked inside people's brains as they enacted revenge on somebody. I think there was a game. I think some people cheated and some didn't. And those who hadn't cheated got to enact revenge on those who had. I'm sure, I'm sure there were ethics committees involved and all that kind of stuff, don't worry. But they examined the brain and they saw this major emotional release, this happiness in the reward centre. It made the, re- it's not a word, but the retaliator, the revenger, happy. It gave them a kind of closure. So your sibling borrows your stuff without asking. It annoys you, it winds you up. You pay them back in some way. You go into their bedroom, don't you? you hide their teddy bear so, so they can't sleep that night, whatever it is. And you feel better for it. There's, an, there's a release as it happens. It's personally satisfying. They annoy you, you make them pay. That's kind of ground level, though. That's you and me on a Monday or a Tuesday or something. That doesn't really answer the question of why, though. The big picture why. Another interesting idea, this was from the Psychological Sciences Journal, and I think this helps a bit. It described our innate desire for revenge, retaliation, vengeance as almost being at the sort of planetary big picture level. And I quote here, and they say that we look for the re-establishment of universal justice. Isn't that interesting? It's almost as if the cosmic scales of justice are, are for a time wonky and we can't cope with that. So we kind of punch them back or we hide their teddy bear or we make them pay and we make them suffer. And so order is restored once again. The cosmic scales of justice are leveled out. They tip back and all is well with the world. I guess it's why some people can spend a lifetime seeking to enact revenge on somebody or something. And they can't rest until that comes. Even It may not even be against them, but maybe against a friend or someone else. And we look for this cosmic scales of justice to be balanced once again. Isn't that striking? It's almost as if there's something innate in us that longs for justice, that wants the world to be at peace. And if you're a Christian here this morning, and I guess most of us are, or many of us are at least, that should not surprise us. Why? Because we know as humanity we are made in the image of the one who is perfectly good and just and right. And good and just and right, and yet with the dial turned right up pure and holy, and where we feel wronged or hurt in some way by something, that's just a sort of minuscule, tiny, tiny amount compared to God's response with his justice. The world is broken and we are marred and messy and there's sin and separation, but the image of God is still in us. 
And so I think my reflection this week, and this is perhaps new for me, is that our desire for revenge is at its best, at its best, a right desire for justice to be seen. And so at least in, in part comes from our being made in God's image and reflecting him in some way. Because he is so perfect and just and pure, so good, the Bible says one day he will put all things right again. Which is good news. It means he's not asleep. It means he's not ignored that thing that has hurt you or that hasn't been dealt with. He's not swept it under the carpet. He's not just forgotten it. One day God will put all things right again, the Bible says. And it's good because at heart we, we want justice. We're a, a people, we're a society even that long for justice. We, we hate a miscarriage of justice. It makes us angry. Or, or maybe we hate that Stalin died in his bed. Millions of people under his regime died through famine or through murder, and yet it seems like he, in one sense, gets away with it. We want justice. We long for it. Of course, God can't ignore it. He can't just pretend it's not there. He can't just sweep it under the carpet because that would mean he's not really, not really just and pure and good and holy. He might be on paper, but not in reality. And so he will do something about it. And I have all kinds of questions about what that will mean in the future, I think. What that final good and righteous justice judgment will look like. Where God's wrath is seen. And it's seen as a good and a right thing. I have close family and friends who aren't believers and for whom that day will be dreadful as far as I understand it. Lots of things I don't know, but the one thing I do know is that God has a track record for getting it right and he is perfect and pure. He's always right. He's always trustworthy. And on that day, all will look to him and say, ha, oh, yeah, you are vindicated in your decision." The judgment you have made is correct. Nobody will look and say, well, that's not fair, because they will see. Of course, our problem is we long for justice. We want it. And yet when we realise quite how just he is, we realise that we deserve his anger too. And so as Christians, we are people who are thankful that Jesus died on the cross where he, in his extraordinary love, takes our sin upon himself and takes the judgment that we deserve upon himself that we might be forgiven and shown mercy, that justice might be satisfied, that his wrath is satisfied. Our sin is not ignored, but it's dealt with. That's kind of a broad foundational, some ideas to sort of throw into the verse before we get there. Um, before we get there in even more depth, just remember the idea for this series, just very quickly. Again, you might be visiting us, or it might be your first time with us, or you might just be forgetful. Um, we're thinking about the disconnect between what we, what we know and what we believe and what we say and then how we live. So what we sing on a Sunday and how we live on a Monday. And indeed, how the, what the culture among us is created when we live in that way. The culture that our behaviour creates, the message that our lives communicate. And we said it's going to be a... a in one sense, a hard, lifelong battle. It's the daily challenge. It's as if we are, do you remember, we're as if we are going vegan for 2022, and yet we keep forgetting and we keep eating steaks because that's what we've always done. 
And muscle memory kicks in and we act as if we are in Adam rather than in Christ. We act as if we are part of the old creation rather than part of the new creation. We forget who we are. There's identity amnesia that goes on. And just in terms of Romans, if you were here last week, Phil really helpfully opened up what's going on in this section of Paul's letter. It's a section that's all about worship. You get that in 12 verse 1. And maybe we say, well, ah, good, yeah, I like worship. I'm good. Sunday mornings are really special to me. I really prioritise my Sunday morning. And Paul says, okay, that's good. Um, Sundays are important, but actually true worship is more than that. It's about all of life. It's all of relationships. It's, it's how we treat people. It's everything. And maybe, ah, that's good as well, because I'm quite involved in church life. I, I prioritise home group. Um, I even go to first Tuesday prayer meeting. <laughs> and Paul says, okay, great. How do, you, how do you deal with tricky people then? Because that's worship too. How are you doing with the people you don't like very much? And there's kind of an awkward silence from our end. And then he moves a bit further through chapter 12 and says, and how about people outside the church? How about those who have got it in for you? How about those you really struggle with? Because that's worship. How do you respond to them? Because that really matters as well. (laughs) You can't expect me. And he says, and then chapter 13 arrives. And Paul says, how about the submission to the authorities over you? Because that's worship. And if you were a church in Rome at that point, that would be a particular problem because it was almost certainly Nero in charge and he was not kind to Christians. And believe it or not, we have it pretty easy. And Paul says, yes, Sundays are important, but actually worship is about every little nook and cranny in your life. The stuff that we see, the stuff that we don't see, the people you like, the people you don't like. How you relate to the government and those above you and how you relate to people around you. And our verse for this week is that hinge where Paul encourages us to begin to look outside the church family and consider how we react to those who do us harm. To those who have got it in for believers. I don't think we know of a particular issue, or one specific issue that Paul is writing into at this point. But I'm pretty sure it was not simply a hypothetical. Christians were under the cosh. Christians were struggling and suffering and opposed. And Paul is not unaware of that as he writes. Paul knows what's going on. Have a look down at 17 to 19. He he faces the Roman Christians outside. We've been thinking about you as a church family. Now turn around and look out there with me, he says. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So second point is why do we not take revenge? Why are we not to repay evil for evil? I mean, it's clear in the, in the verse, isn't it? We are not the ones to mete out justice because that is God's job. We leave room for him. And if you look at the footnote, you can see he's quoting from Deuteronomy 32. Um, Edge of the promised land. Final sermon from Moses, kind of parting words. 
And he encourages the people of God in the land to be faithful, not to respond to the taunts of your enemies, not to respond to the people around you in a like manner, but rather to leave it to the Lord. An edge of promised land in Rome and Oxford are very different settings. But God's people are still opposed. And God's people are still tempted to seek vengeance and retaliation. And God himself is still just and right and good and promises to deal with it eventually in his time. And so we are to leave room for him. Not being clear on what your job is is exhausting, isn't it? Maybe um, maybe you've been in a situation at work uh, or life more generally and you lack clarity about your role in some way. Maybe you work in a team, maybe it's a good team. But there's a job that nobody else is doing. And it's all a bit stressful because it's kind of falling between the cracks and it's messy. And, and you're the conscientious type, so you just end up doing it. You sort of step forward as everybody else steps back. And, and yet you're not the right person for the job. You're not trained. You've not got the skills. And when you end up doing a job that is not yours, it can be exhausting and confusing and draining and not good for us. Or so for us, friend, it is not your task to re-establish universal justice in this world. It is not part of your job description. That is not for you. There's something about sin that is always wanting to take the role of job, to role of God, to, to be like him in some way. To do his things, to be doing what he does. And it's the same here. It is not our job to re-establish universal justice in this world. In part because we're not very good at it. We, we don't have all the information. We are, we are not all-knowing, believe it or not. The internet is great, but we are not all-knowing. We don't know motives. We don't know hearts. We can't see inside people. And as well as that, we can get it wrong. We are not perfectly just and perfectly good. And perfectly righteous. And maybe we say, well, my anger, this is a righteous anger in this situation, in this scenario. That is why I am doing it. Look, Jesus, he turned over tables in the temple. But if we're honest, we know there may be righteous anger there, but it's so easily tied up with self-righteous anger too. We're not good at it. We overreact. In fact, it's why God established an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth in Leviticus 24, because it limits escalation. It means that things don't get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And worse and worse and worse and worse. So we're not good at it, but it's not good for us either. And it is not your job, it is not your role to re-establish universal justice. Because the anger and the resentment and the revenge that we take on has a way of warping us and our hearts. And it turns us inwards and angry and bitter, and we, we ruminate, and we, we can't move on from it. We end up stuck. Maybe there are some of us this morning who know something of that. That kind of rumination and that bitterness where we can't leave something, where we want to act out that vengeance in some way, something that you carry with you, a, a desire to, to retaliate, or this hurt, this tightening, this resentment inside, it's exhausting. It's damaging. 
I spoke to someone this last week who hadn't spoken to their brother for over a decade, about 12 years. Why? Because they were very good at holding a grudge, they said. Because they don't really do forgiveness in their family, they said. It might be really sad. It's damaging. Morden wrote, it is not our job to mete out justice and revenge on people. We can trust him. We can leave it with him. He is all-knowing. He has not missed it. He has not forgotten. He has not just ignored it. He is perfectly just and he is good and he is righteous. And so the third question really then is how do we grow in this? In one sense, I'm just reiterating what I've already said. How do we grow in it? First thing, we know our job. Some of it might simply be this morning, God breaking in and reminding us, remember what your role is. Remember that you don't need to retaliate. Revenge can come so naturally, so easily. Vengeance can be so knee-jerk. The toddler who's had their toy snatched. And our immediate reaction is to kind of snatch it back and then thump them as well. And in that moment, maybe we're to know that we can leave it to him. Leave the vengeance to him. Leave room for him. It is part of his job description, it's not ours. He has the perfect knowledge, he's omniscient, he has perfect character, he's utterly righteous. He's not corrupted by it, broken by it, bitter from it. And it's always righteous anger, it's never self-righteous anger with God. Secondly, no, you can hand it over to him. You can trust him. And I say that with some trepidation this morning because in a room like this or next door or online, hello, um, there'll be folk who'll be carrying a whole load of hurt and bitterness and brokenness and anger and a desire for vengeance. There'll be deep, deep wounds, maybe from childhood, maybe stuff that you've never told anyone before, maybe things that this last year have hit you, whatever it might be. And so if the first comment is, know your job, the second is, know that you can hand it to him. You can trust him. At the right time, he will deal with that situation perfectly. He's not forgotten. He's not missed it. Either they will face his justice, ultimately, or if they turn, turn to Christ, if they trust him, then that God's anger against their sin has already been paid for. And they may learn, they may be disciplined, they may grow, they may mature, but we can leave it to him, that is not our job. In one sense, holding on to our hurt is so understandable and natural, but it does something so damaging to us. It's not what we were made for. Maybe you know folk in your life who have done that. Maybe, maybe they're 10 years, 20 years, 30 years on from you, they've been unable to let it go and they've been eaten up by it and they are bitter and they are spiky and they are vicious and they are not much fun to be around he can cope with it in a way that we can't so leave room for God's wrath third one how do we get better at not retaliating well know that his grace is more than enough it's always more than enough some of us struggle to show grace to others because our grasp of how much we need and how much we receive is too little. 
Their sin is massive. It's so obvious. Why can't they see it? What's wrong with them? And ours, I'm tiny, tiny. It's a little grain. It's barely there. And we magnify theirs and we minimize ours. And so we lose sight of the depths of our sin and then the height of his extraordinary love for us. We lose sight of the fact there's always enough grace for us. It's a bit like um, Christmas where on a non-COVID Christmas you get a family box of chocolates. You know how it is and the guests come over and cousins eye roll and family and aunts and uncles and they look at your chocolates in a sort of hungry kind of way and and you're trying to be a good guest, you're trying to be polite, and you're fake smile, <laughs> have a chocolate, reluctantly handing them out, and you reach the end of the box, and you, you feel a bit glum because you've only had two, and one was coffee and one was coconut, and they're your least favourite. You look at the box and you think, it's cardboard, but it feels heavier than I expected, and suddenly you realise, ah, there's a, there's a layer, and you take off the layer, and there's, there's more chocolates. Extraordinary. And you go, ah, oh, well, Go around the room again. We can be generous. We can be kind. There's another layer and another layer. Like the TARDIS. There's, there's more than enough chocolates to go around for everybody. And you, there you were being a bit stingy and a bit reluctant. And, and you know, God is not stingy with his grace that he shows to us. There's always enough. There's always enough. Maybe we think, well, he's going to run out. No, there's always more. There's always enough for us. And I wonder if we get a better grasp of the amount of grace that he pours down for us, his mercy and his kindness and his love, his generosity, there's always enough for whatever we need. Do you remember his mercies are new every morning? Why? Because there are challenges every morning, because there is sin every morning. There's always enough grace for whatever we need, and so we are shaped and moulded and changed. And as we receive grace, so it just begins to sort of bubble out of us. We recognise the depths of our sin and the heights of his love and he keeps filling and keeps filling and maybe then we can show grace to others. Not lashing out, not seeking revenge, not looking for vengeance or retaliation. Because we know his grace has been poured out on us and there's always enough. Well then maybe we can be generous as we forgive others. Let's pray. Let's pray that we would have a posture, a desire for forgiveness. That he would help us to forgive. That he would help us to leave it to him. To leave room for his wrath. Let's pray. we thank you for the extraordinary grace that you have poured down on us thank you that there's always enough and if ever we think you're being stingy then there's more and more and more thank you that there's mercy every morning and we pray that you might even just open our eyes a little bit that we might see more of the depths of our sin and our hearts and the murkiness there that we might know how extraordinarily loved we are and how generous you are with us Lord, help us to know our role when people hurt us. 
we're sorry when we do seek self-righteous vengeance or retaliation. We're sorry when our motives are mixed. We pray that you would help us to be those who leave it to you. We pray that you would be you would help us to, to forgive where we need to forgive. We pray that you would help us to trust you enough to leave it to you rather than seeking to, to sort out some kind of cosmic balance because that's not our role. Well, I particularly pray for any here or listening or listening back who have been particularly hurt. I pray that you would draw near Pray that you would pour out your grace into their hearts. Pray that you would help them even to be in that posture of forgiveness. Lord, these things are hard and we live in sinful, suffering, broken worlds. We long that our culture among us at Nordland Road would be one of, not of retaliation and vengeance and revenge, as we relate to each other, but as we relate to the world around us as well. Help us to leave these things to you, knowing that you are all known and that you are all good. In Jesus' name we pray.